Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are uh, doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Doing only two verses today, but we are going to uh, break them down and uh, get all the meat off that bone. I mentioned uh, buffalo wings and theological equipping, so apparently I'm just going to keep going with that reference. Uh, Before we get into this text, I want to mention that uh, I've got two little kids. One of them is three, uh, my son, Judah, uh, and the other one is Isla. She is uh, only one. She's this cute little blonde girl. She kind of looks like uh, the Olsen twins back before they became weird and uh, very, very cute. And you learn a lot about God by having kids. Or to phrase that better, kids remind you of things that the Bible already says about God, okay? We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, so even if you never get married, even if you never have kids, you can have a great, vibrant relationship with God because of the Scripture. So kids don't teach you about God. They remind you of things the Scripture already says about God. And so, for example, I'm reminded constantly that I don't need their help. If I'm changing a diaper and they try to help, it just gets worse, okay? It's much worse if they do that. If my son wants to help me work on the lawn, which is something he's been doing, he doesn't really help me. To be honest, he just kind of slows me down. But what is he doing? He's spending time with daddy, okay? So there's a lot of uh, good theological truths in there. My kids, when they're really little, they don't know how to talk. My daughter, Isla, still doesn't say any words. We're worried that she'll never talk. But what does she do when she needs help? She cries, okay? She doesn't know what she needs, but she knows she'll get help if she cries. And right now she's doing this thing where when she cries, she also sticks out her tongue. So she cries like this, (laughs) okay? Now, I'm not going to do that again. If you missed that, you just missed it. Okay, but uh, that's how she cries, uh, and it's adorable, so we just keep letting her cry because we're laughing, and then we help her, okay? Uh, so she doesn't know how to ask for things, but because we're good parents, we already know what she needs. We anticipate her needs. She just has to cry. Sometimes my kids ask for things that they don't need that are not good for them. So if I'm eating some really spicy food, let's say I'm eating some sort of hot sauce or something like that, my son will be like, can I have some of that? And I'll be like, no, son, I know you've asked for it but you've asked for something that is not good for you because you don't know what's good for you. And so though I'm not trying to keep you from fun, I'm not going to give you this hot sauce. There's some spiritual lessons there. Also, what my kids are learning is this. Ready? They don't need all the things they think they need. They just need me. They think they need a house and toys and food and candy and all these things, but really if they just have me because I love them, I will take care of everything else. The main focus should be they realize they need me, and I will give them all the other things they need. A lot of good, helpful spiritual lessons there, okay? Well, in this text today, we're going to see how we are helped, how we are helped by the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that we don't even know how to pray rightly, but God is gracious and has made up for uh, our lack. And so let's open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into verse 26, all right? Let's pray. Almighty God, I confess that you're great and that you're mighty and that you're powerful and that you uh, uh, exceed everything that we could hope that you would ever be. And so I ask that you would, uh, by the power of the Spirit and coming before you only because of the Son, that you would bless this time and that you would help us, that you would protect us from the enemy, from his lies. We thank you for this text. I pray that it might be encouraging to us today. In Christ's name, amen. Verse 26a, we're going to break down this text into uh, little chunks. So let's start with the first part of 26. It says this, likewise... The Spirit helps us in our weakness, okay? First of all, let's take that first word, likewise. What is that in reference to? Well, last week, Tim taught on the fact that though we will go through suffering, we have a tremendous amount of hope because resurrection is coming. We talked about how mankind was supposed to rule over the earth, and when mankind sinned, the earth became broken, and Adam basically turned to Eve and said, this is why we can't have nice things, and everything got messed up. And though everything's messed up and there's suffering and brokenness, 
we have hope because one day we will be glorified. One day we will be resurrected. One day everything will be okay. And so what the Apostle Paul here, by saying likewise, is saying, in the same way that though times were difficult and we have this hope of resurrection, we also have another hope that the text is going to talk about, namely the Spirit. So he's saying all this Christian hope we've talked about last week, in addition to that, we also have the Spirit who will help us in our weakness. So it says, likewise, the next phrase here is the Spirit. Okay, let me say something about the Spirit, because you have to understand who the Holy Spirit is for this text to make any sense, okay? Sometimes we treat the Holy Spirit like He is the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity, and we forget that God is a Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Spirit, okay? So what you need to know about the Spirit in this text is, one, He's God, and two, He's personal, Okay? Let me show you both of those, show you some text on this. Let's see where he's God. Acts 5, 3 through 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the what? Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to whom? To God. Here, notice, lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. He is of the same substance as God, just like the Son. Psalm 139.7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Notice that the spirit here is equated with the presence of God. Wherever the spirit is is where God is because the spirit is God. Matthew 28.19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now notice, you would never say something like this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of Jeff Ashley, right? Because one of those things is not like the other. You would not say baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Archangel Michael, okay? One of those things is not like the other. By including the Spirit here in the name of the one God, you see Trinitarianism. There's only one God, but somehow He is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's pretty clear. The Spirit is deity. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Searches even the depths of God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. You need to know that He's God. You also need to know that He's personal. He's not a force. He's not an electricity. He's a he, not an it. Look at some other verses about his personality, his uh, personableness. John 14, 25 through 26. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice the Spirit's distinct here from the Father and the Son. And this Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Notice that the Spirit can teach. He can bring things to remembrance. He's personal. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't grieve the Spirit. Again, He's personal, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Acts 13.2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, notice that the Holy Spirit can speak. Again, not a force or an it, a he. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 1 Corinthians 2.13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Okay? So this text says, likewise, in the same way that you have hope and resurrection, you have hope that God himself will guide you, that God himself will preserve you, that God himself will intercede for you, okay? Next, the text says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, okay? 
What does that mean? Well, I think when it talks about helping us in our weakness, that weakness is the entire human condition. Yes, in some sense, we're weak because we're sinners. We're broken. We're corrupted. But I don't think that's the main thrust of this text. I think the main thing it's trying to say is the reason that we're weak is because we're just humans. We're fallible. We don't know a lot. We are weak. So let me say some things here. Let me give you some hard truth. Ready? You are not great. Okay? Humans are special. God made us in his image, which doesn't mean we look like him. God doesn't have a body, but it does mean that we're special. We're better than dogs. We're better than dolphins. Sorry, PETA. We are speciesist, okay? We do think that humans are, have a special value that other things don't have. But listen, compared to God, though, you and I are nothing. We are made out of the dirt. We trip over our own feet, which is hilarious. We have to sleep every day. How weird is that? You have to become unconscious for several hours a day, or you can't function, okay? You have to go to the bathroom. Every time you go to the bathroom, I want you to think to yourself, I'm not like God. I'm not like God. It is a reminder of how weak and broken and fallible we are. We only live a few decades, and then we die. We don't live very long. Turtles live longer than us. Certain sharks live longer than us, okay? We get sick all the time, especially here at Parkway, because we have like a billion kids And kids are like the most adorable Petri dishes you've ever seen, right? We get sick, we die, we're weak, we're not smart. How many languages do you know? There are thousands upon thousands of languages. How many do you know? One, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four. You're still at less than 1% of the languages, okay? We are not great. We have value. God loves us, but we are made out of the dirt. We are limited. We are creatures. We are we fail. We choke on our own spit, okay? We're not strong physically. Think about how many other animals are stronger than us. Less than 1% of women and less than 15% of men can do one dead hang pull-up, okay? And not only that, we're becoming dumber. So in case I've already lowered humanity enough, which I like to do, society likes to exalt humanity and think that we're just going to solve all our own problems. We're the problem, not the solution. And so not only are we broken and weak and dumb, we're becoming dumber, okay? Four years, I'm sorry, Westerners have dropped an average of 14 IQ points since the Victorian era. Only 26% of Americans can name all three branches of government. That means almost 75% of people, three out of four, cannot name the three branches of government, okay? 37% of Americans can't mention any rights protected by the First Amendment. You wonder why there's so many problems in politics, okay? People don't know what America is supposed to be because they don't take the time to read. 30% of Americans surveyed didn't know what the Holocaust was. The average reading level of an American is the seventh grade, and the reading speed is now half of what it was in the 1950s, okay? So don't think that just because technology is getting better that people are getting better, okay? We are in a dark ages, if you want to say that intellectually. We, uh, people are getting dumber. People back, kids back in Greece would argue what it means to have being, and our kids just play Xbox, okay? So don't think that just because technology is better and medicine is better, people are more moral or smart. We are not. Do you know what you have to do to become a professor today? You can go online, spend one to two years online getting a master's degree, and then you can teach at a community college, okay? Do you know what you had to do in the Middle Ages? You had to study the trivium and the quadrivium for four years, full-time. After that, you had to study and lecture on the Bible for another two years. After that, you had to lecture on and study Peter Lombard's The Four Books of Sentences, which was like a standard medieval theology textbook. After that, you had to study and teach for another five years. And then after 13 years of full-time study, living on campus, usually being single in Latin, 
then you could teach as a professor. Okay? Not only are we weak and broken, we're becoming dumber. And so what this text is saying is, you don't know what's best. You need the Spirit. Yes, you're broken, but yes, we're just weak because we're humans, because we're finite, because we're fallible. Verse 26b. It's going to get even worse. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Okay? So in addition to just being weak, we're so weak, we don't even know what to pray for. Okay? Now notice, this is not saying you don't know how to pray as far as style. It's not talking about like, uh, you know, how some people think there are certain things you have to do when you pray. So like if you're praying with other people and you're at the end of the prayer, you have to squeeze their hands or else the prayer doesn't go through. It's like you type a text message, but you don't hit send and the squeeze is the send. And now God's like, got it right? Uh, or people think that, uh, you know, you have to uh, pray with certain, you have to kneel or not kneel or use your hand. You have to get in certain prayer positions or something like that. That's not what the text is talking about. It's not talking about style. It's not talking about the words you use. Think about back to uh, whenever there's like Thanksgiving and your crazy drunk Uncle Ted is there with his new girlfriend or whatever, and you know that he has probably never prayed, and he gets asked to bless the food for Thanksgiving, and out of his mouth, with no education, comes the most refined King James English you have ever heard. Almighty God, we beseech thee. You're like, beseech? He's wearing a NASCAR t-shirt. What, beseech? We stand betwixt, betwixt, right? That's not what the text is saying. It's not talking about how we pray. You actually have a lot of freedom in how you pray. You can lift your eyes, you can raise your hands, you can kneel, you can fold your hands, you can close your eyes, whatever you want to do. Look what it says specifically, okay? For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know what the content of our prayers should be. Now, sometimes that's because of sin. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But that's not the main thrust of what's going on in this text. Because we are limited, because we are human, because we are finite, we don't even know what we should pray for. We don't know what's best. Like my son asking me for hot sauce, though it's not good for him, we ask God for all kinds of things that are not good. Okay? We don't know how to pray. Now, let me take a quick shot at something because I love taking shots at bad things, okay? One of the things that I hate about what had become really popular, it's dying out now, which is good, uh, at least in the U.S., but what had become really popular a decade or so ago was the whole Word of Faith movement, TBN, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, all these kind of guys. By the way, they're going to hell. They preach a false gospel, and they do not know Christ. I can't say it stronger than that. One of the things that they would say, though, when it comes to prayer is they would say that what really matters with prayer is the strength of how hard you believe what you're praying for. So they define faith as how much certainty that you have when you're, that your prayer is going to happen. So for them, if you want a new job, you need to pray really, really, really hard that you're going to get it. And if you don't get the job, the problem is with you because you didn't believe it enough. You should have conjured up enough faith, kind of man-made fervor, and then the prayer would have happened. Okay? Listen, in the Bible, because we don't know what's best for us, faith is about trusting God Himself, not about you knowing everything that God's going to do. Faith is not about the strength of your faith. Your faith is directed at the person, or rather trinity of persons, of God. So rather, He knows what's best. My kids don't know what they need. What they need is me, and I take care of them in the same way we should when we're praying to God realize faith is about trusting God, not about how hard we believe something, because some things we won't know what God's will is. As we've said multiple times, weak faith still gets you the same strong Christ as does strong faith. It's the object of your faith, which is what's powerful, not the strength of your faith. But here's some good news. Verse 26c, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep 
for words. Now, I've got to spend some time on this, uh, this part of verse 26 because this is often misinterpreted. Let me mention a few things, and then I'm going to mention about uh, something a bit more controversial. First of all, I want you to see that the Spirit himself has a ministry of intercession. The Son has a ministry of intercession. He's our great high priest, stands between God and man. The Spirit, though, has a different type of intercession to where he's, uh, in a sense, praying on our behalf. We don't know what to ask for, so the Spirit will ask for things on our behalf because we're broken. And you see this idea of groaning. This groaning language is a lot in this text. So from uh, Tim's text last week, I want to throw a few verses up on the screen so you can see uh, that angst and that longing and that groaning. Verse 19 here in chapter 8, for the creation waits with eager longing. You see that idea of groaning. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning. So this text will say creation groans. And then in verses 23 and 25, it'll say people groan. We ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. In verse 25, we wait for it with patience. So there's already this idea of groaning. All creation groans, the the trees bend and creak, the seas roar, knowing that something's broken. We within ourselves realize that something's broken, but there's another one who groans, and it's the Spirit, and he groans on our behalf. Now, how a lot of people have interpreted verse 26 is that this is a reference to speaking in tongues, that that's what this groaning is. So let me spend some time unpacking uh, a few things for you. The modern-day charismatic movement has some good things and has some bad things, okay? The good things about this movement is that the gospel is blowing up, especially in places like South America, especially in places like Asia, especially in places like Africa. Tons of people are getting saved, and the fastest-growing denominations in those regions are charismatic churches, which is great, okay? To to the extent that they're preaching orthodoxy, preaching true doctrine, and people are getting saved, that is a blessing. There are heretical wings of the uh, charismatic movement, the United Pentecostal Church, not regular Pentecostals, but the United Pentecostal Church is modalist. They deny the Trinity. So there are some bad wings that we would totally reject, but there are orthodox uh, people who are charismatic, and in that sense, that's really good. Now, let me tell you one of the big problems with the charismatic movement is what it did is it moved the focus away from God, and it moved it to us. It moved the focus of spirituality away from God and His blessing, and it moved it to us and our power and the miracles that I've seen and these kind of things, okay? So let me explain tongues for you biblically. Where's the first place in the Bible where you can think of where it talks about different languages or tongues? What is it? Babel, the Tower of Babel. You remember this story? In the story of the Tower of Babel, here's what's going on. Humanity is exalting themselves, right? They say, forget God, we will be great like God, which, by the way, is always the root of human sin, trying to be like God. That's what Adam does. That's what they're doing at the uh, Tower of Babel. And what they're saying is, we will make our name great. We will have a good brand, we humans. We will have a good social media presence. We will be great. We will exalt ourselves to the heavens. We'll build this huge tower and show how awesome we are. So as part of God's judgment, what does he do? He confuses their language. Why? Because when sinful humans get together, we just pool our stupid. We just pool our ignorance. Check out social media. That's what it is, just babble. Everyone can communicate, and they don't use it for good. They use it for stupid, okay? Now, so that's what you have going on in Babylon. So what does God do as judgment? He confuses their languages. A confused language is a sign of judgment in the Bible. Israel, when they go into Assyria, when they're exiled into Assyria, they're told that they're going to hear people speaking in strange languages, okay? They speak Aramaic or Hebrew, and now when they're in Assyria and they're hearing people speaking in some strange Assyrian dialect, they think to themselves, this isn't home. How did we get here? Oh, yeah, we committed idolatry and we got exiled, okay? 
So with that background in mind, confused language is not understanding someone's language is seen as a judgment from God against human arrogance and pride. So with that in mind, think about what's going on in Acts 2 with Pentecost. In Acts 2, these people are now able to hear the gospel. The languages are not being confused. They're able to be understood. Pentecost is the opposite of Babel. It's the undoing of Babel. Okay? Whereas human language was confused because of human arrogance, because Christ has died to pay for our proud sins, now the gospel can go out not just to Jews, but everybody. They come to, they come to Jerusalem and they say, are all these men Galileans, how do we hear them speak in our own language? And it's this miracle. Okay? That's really what tongues is about. It's about God's grace in sending the gospel out to the nations and reversing his judgment of Babel because Christ has made a way. That's what it's about. In fact, there are really three Pentecosts going on in the book of Acts, okay? The theme of the book of Acts is this, that the Holy Spirit is going to bring the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Where in the book of Acts do you see the idea of tongues poured out most forcefully? In Jerusalem, Judea, that's Acts 2, in Acts 8, in Samaria, and then in Acts 10 with the Gentiles, the end of the earth. That's what's going on with tongues. So tongues is meant to be something to focus on God and His grace and His glory as He's reversing the effects of the fall. It's not meant to do what a lot of people do today, which is to flop around on the floor and everybody speak in tongues, though the Holy Spirit Himself says not to do that in 1 Corinthians and these kind of things, okay? So the focus is on God. The idea of glossolalia is what it's called in Greek. Glossa means tongue or language. Laleo means to speak. It's onomatopoetic. It sounds like speaking. That's where it comes from, okay? Glossolalia. That is meant to be a sign that God has accepted these Gentile nations. Be careful of building too much of your theology out of the book of Acts because the book of Acts is a transitional book, okay? The Jews think the gospel is only for Jews. And so what God is doing by this sign is showing the Jews that he has poured forth his spirit even on Gentiles so they might know who the one true God is, the God of Israel. That's what's going on. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, Zach, then what do we think about tongues today? You've got to wait till we get to 1 Corinthians or in theological equipping. But let's keep looking at this verse. So with all that in mind, when it says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, let me tell you why that is not the idea of speaking in tongues. Number one, it says that the groans are too deep for words. It doesn't say that other words are used that you can hear. They're just confusing. It says that the groanings are too deep for words. They're inexpressible in that sense. Number two, the groans are from the Spirit and not from us. It's not us groaning and speaking out. It's the Spirit speaking on our behalf. And then most importantly, it's this. Ready? Uh, Romans 8 is describing what's true of every Christian. Okay? This is true of every Christian. However, in 1 Corinthians, specifically in 1 Corinthians 12.30, it says that not all Christians have the gift of tongues. Not all Christians hear God's word in their heart. Not all Christians uh, uh, have the gift of hospitality. Not all Christians can teach or whatever. Not all Christians have all the gifts or else we wouldn't need the body. So you can't say this is speaking in tongues because this is what Paul expects of all believers. If you're a believer, you have the spirit and he groans within you. And that doesn't mean you have some sort of gift or something like that of tongues. Okay? So I'll give you a little example of what's going on here. When we go into a restaurant, my son is notoriously mean to waiters and waitresses. Okay? He doesn't realize that they're people. He acts like they're slaves, okay? So they will come up, and the first thing he will do is he'll start grabbing things out of their little apron. And we say, stop that. You're going to get sued for harassment. Stop, stop pulling things. Stop stealing stuff. Stop it. And then as soon as the waiter comes by, he'll go, hey, I need some food. We're like, shh, sorry. He's, uh, he 
was once assaulted by a waiter, and so he's got the kind of attention here. Sorry, he doesn't. I, I'll order for him because he doesn't know what he needs. The waiter will come by, and, and they'll take our order, and he'll be like, I want some popcorn. We're like, they don't have popcorn here. Shh, we'll order for you. And so I say, I'm sorry for my son. He, he hates you. Let me explain what he's saying. He needs a grilled cheese and french fries and ketchup, okay? I want ice cream. They don't have ice cream here. Stop it. Stop yelling. Sit down. Sit down. Play with my iPhone. Sit down. And what's happening there is he doesn't know what he needs. He's broken. I love him, but he is weak. He's not intelligent compared to me. And so what I have to do is I, yeah, that was a humble brag. I'm smarter than a three-year-old. So don't mess with me. 100% of three-year-olds I've uh, talked to, I've outquizzed. Uh, okay. So what I'm doing, though, is I'm having to intercede for him. I'm having to say, you don't know what you need. And so, no, you don't need this. I will tell the waiter what you need. He needs this, he needs this, he needs this. That's kind of what's going on in this text. We are like my son. God, I need this, and I need this, and I think this is what's best. And the Spirit's like, plays the role of of me. The Spirit's like, no, that's not what you need. Father, who's the waiter in this analogy, this is actually what Zach needs or whoever needs. Okay, that's kind of what's going on. Now, let me ask you this question. Here it says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Whose groanings are these? Well, I think primarily, according to context, it's the Spirit. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. These are the Spirit's groanings on our behalf. But there is also a sense in which the more we walk with Christ, the more our longings and the Spirit's longings line up together. Okay? I want to give you two quotes from uh, New Testament scholars. One's a guy named Doug Moo. The other's a guy named Tom Schreiner. They're actually both Roman scholars specifically, and they do a great job summarizing verse 26. Here's what they say. Our failure to know God's will and consequent inability to petition God specifically and assuredly is met by God's Spirit, who himself expresses to God those intercessory petitions that perfectly match the will of God. When we do not know what to pray for, yes, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, we need not despair, for we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. And then Schreiner says this, God searches the hearts of believers and finds unutterable longings to conform their lives to the will of God. The Holy Spirit takes these groanings and presents them before God in an articulate form. Even though believers cannot specify their request to God adequately since they do not know his will sufficiently, the Holy Spirit translates these groanings and conforms them to God's will. Let me give you an illustration of what these things are saying. I've been trying to think all week of a good illustration of what's going on here, and I think that I have one. Anybody in here ever been skydiving? Okay, a few people, people in the military, some others. Okay, good. Uh, I have not been skydiving, okay? I don't even like flying in a plane, much less jumping out of a plane, okay? If you ever go skydiving, they don't just give you a backpack full of some sort of cloth and say, good luck, okay? There are certain requirements you have to meet, okay? You have to be of a certain age. You haven't seen a whole lot of infant skydive, I bet. Uh, you can't have given blood within 24 hours of skydiving, which I don't think that needs to be said. But every time you go to give blood, it will say, please do not skydive within 24 hours. And I think they should just remove that clause. Because if you're the kind of person that schedules those two things on the same day, we should probably get some of those genes out of the gene pool, okay? So there are certain requirements you have to meet. And when you first go skydiving, you can't just a lot of times go by yourself, right? Because some people pass out their first time and that would kill them. So what do you do? You have to go with a skydiving instructor and you have to jump what's called in tandem, okay? When you're skydiving, not when you're doing static line jumps or something like that, when you're going skydiving. And so what happens is you have this skydiving instructor who's an expert. They know a lot about skydiving and they strap you to the front of them. So you're like the Joey in their little kangaroo marsupial pouch and you go towards the door and you jump out of the airplane, okay? 
Now, here's what is great. The skydiving instructor does all the stuff. The skydiving instructor checks the altitude. The skydiving instructor is the one that will pull the chute. The skydiving instructor knows if the chute gets caught caught up or whatever, they know how to untie it. They know how to fix it. And it doesn't matter how well you do. Some people are brave. They go skydiving. They're like, I love this. Other people are freaking out. Other people have longings and groanings. They're like, pull the chute, pull the chute, pull the chute. And they're like, it's not time to pull the chute. But everything's going to be okay because it's not about that person who's strapped to them. They're just strapped to the instructor. Their job is literally just to hang there. The instructor knows what to do, and the instructor does all the work. When you pray, the Spirit is like that skydiving instructor. You might be good at praying. You might not be good at praying. doesn't matter. You might have groanings or not have groanings. You might, want, you might want them to pull the chute early or him to pull the chute early, whatever, and he might not. He knows what's best. So when you're praying for stuff and freaking out, the Spirit's like, here's what they need. We're going to die. You're not going to die. Here's what you need. And the Spirit is like that skydiving instructor, and he does the stuff. He does all of it. The Spirit dwells inside of you. You're strapped to the instructor, right? So you don't kill yourself. But he is the one who does the stuff. That's what this text is saying about the Spirit, okay? Verse 27a. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Okay, let me explain this because this is a very easy passage to understand, but I want to do some deep theology so there's no misunderstanding here. All verse 27a is meaning is simply this, that as someone prays, God looks inside that person and God is hearing the Spirit's prayer on their behalf. So it's very easy to understand. This is a very easy text to understand, okay? We don't know how to pray, so the Spirit's praying for us, and the Father hears the Spirit's prayer. That's all this text means. Now, I want to do a little theology, one, because I think it's always good for us, but two, to guard against a misunderstanding, okay? When we talk about God, one of the things that we've talked about is that God is very unlike us. God is very different from humans, okay? God is Trinitarian. Uh, God is everywhere. We don't know what that's like. I'm not everywhere. I'm just right here. For any object I see, I can only see three-dimensional. I can only see a few sides of it, but I can't see the other side. God sees all the sides from every angle all the time. He's everywhere, okay? God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do everything. I can't do hardly anything. God is omniscient. He knows everything. We don't know hardly anything compared to God. So he is a very different being than us. And one of the things that we talk about when we talk about God is known as the doctrine of divine simplicity simplicity. What does that mean? When we say that God is simple, we don't mean that he's easy to understand. We also don't mean that he is dumb, right? Like someone who's a simple person is somebody who's not very intelligent. That's not what we mean when we talk about that. When we say that God is simple, what we mean is this, that God is not made up of parts. God is not composite. Whatever God is, he's just God. He's just God's stuff. I don't even want to say it that way because he's not stuff like that, but but you get the point, okay? When the Bible says God is love and the Bible says God is light, that doesn't mean that God is 50% love and 50% light. God is 100% love and 100% light and 100% righteousness and 100% truth. and 100%. God is just God, and God happens to be all these attributes, okay? Let me give you an example of what I mean. Think of a light, like white light, that shines into a prism, okay? The white light is just one thing. And the prism, though, helps break out the different colors in the light so that you can, you can analyze it. When we talk about God's love and God's wrath and God's goodness and these kind of things, we're kind of putting God through a prism. We're kind of separating these attributes so that we can better understand them, but they're not actually separate to God, okay? God's love, 
God's mind, God's will, God's goodness, God's wrath. They're all the exact same thing for God, okay? We're not like that. My fingers, check this out, are not the same as my arm. My soul is not the same as my hair. My heart is not the same as my knees, okay? For God, though, He's not made up of parts. He's just God. He's a a unity. He is simple. That's what we mean by simplicity, okay? That's what we mean by simplicity. Or when you go to buy a a diamond, okay? So when I was going to propose to Katie, I had to go buy a diamond. And I became an expert on diamonds. I actually took a little class on diamonds. And you learn about all these k sounds when it comes to diamonds. They have carrot and cut and color and clarity. The one they leave off is cost. (laughs) But they have all these things. Now, there's just one diamond, but you're kind of trying to view it from different angles. So when we talk about God's love or God's wrath or whatever, those aren't different in God. God is just God. And we talk about His attributes so that we can better understand it. Again, God is beyond our knowledge in this sense. Not only do we know this because God doesn't, the Bible doesn't just say God happens to be loving. It'll say God is love. God just doesn't happen to be righteous. righteous. He is righteousness, okay? To quote Augustine, God is what He has. Let me give you a few quotes on divine simplicity, then I want to tell you why I'm saying this. First one comes from Kevin DeYoung. It says this, The simplicity of God is an important truth few Christians think about anymore. By simple, we do not mean God is slow or dim-witted, nor do we mean that God is easy to understand. Simple as a divine attribute is the opposite of compound. The simplicity of God means He is not made up of His attributes. He does not consist of goodness, mercy, justice, and power. He is goodness, mercy, justice, and power. Every attribute of God is identical with His essence. Or as Burkhoff would say, Scripture implies it, i.e. divine simplicity, where it speaks of God as righteousness, truth, wisdom, light, life, love, and so on, and thus indicates that each of these properties, because of their absolute perfection, is identical with His being. Okay? To say the following things, God is good, God is love, and God is God means the exact same thing for God. Okay? means the exact same thing for God. Now, why do I say all of that? Okay? Because the Spirit and the Father and the Son don't have different minds. So here when it says, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, here, I say all of that so you don't get this, confu- this confusion. I don't want you thinking the Father looks down from heaven, has to figure out what the Spirit is thinking, and then, okay, now that I've read your mind, Spirit, now I know what to do. No, the God, because there's only one God, He only has one mind, one will, one essence, etc. Okay? Whatever the Spirit wants, the Father wants, and the Son wants. Whatever the Son wants, the Spirit wants, and the Father wants. Whatever the Father wants, the the Son and the, the Spirit want. God only has one will. So I say all of that simply to say, this text is not saying that God has to look down and figure out what the Spirit's saying. What this text is saying is the desire the Spirit has to conform you to Christ and the desire the Father has to conform you to Christ are the same desire, the same will. Historically, it's believed that God only has one will because God is simple. His will is the same as His essence. When it comes to the doctrine of Christ, right, when we talked about Christology, who is Jesus? We would say Jesus is only one person, but He has two distinct natures. He's fully God and He's fully man. When we say that He's fully man, that also means that He has truly a human mind, truly a human will. Jesus is not Clark Kent. He doesn't just look like us when He's wearing His glasses, He actually is human while remaining God, okay? And so historically, the church has held that God has one will. Jesus has two wills, though, the divine will and His human will, which is the only way you can make sense of His prayer in the garden, not my will be done but thine. 
He can't be meaning his divine will. He wants the same thing as the Father. He's saying, I'm also a human, and this is scary because I'm about to die. Okay? So I say all of that deep theology, which you can go back and listen to on the recording, simply to say this. The Spirit does not have a different mind from the Father here. Don't think that there is this division in the Trinity. That's what I'm trying to get you to avoid. What's happening here is this. The one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knows what is best for you and is working all things according to the counsel of His will, and He uses all things for the good of those that love Him. Okay? All things for the good of those that love Him. Verse 27b. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, this is a fascinating text because this is going to say this. Christ intercedes for believers on behalf of the Father's right hand, but the Spirit intercedes for believers in a different way within our hearts, within our hearts as He's praying for us with these groanings that are too deep for words. 27b again, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. That's just a, a word for Christians. Don't think Roman Catholic saints that are canonized and people have done miracles in their name. That's not what the Bible means by this. It just means Christians, those who've been set apart. That's what you are as a saint. Your identity is as a saint. Yes, you commit sins, but it's not your identity. Your identity is a saint, a child of God by adoption. And then it says this, for the saints according to the will of God. Okay? So let me say something that's really important. The Bible teaches that if you pray for anything and believe it, that God will give it to you. But listen to this huge, huge caveat that the Bible gives. 1 John 5, 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked for him. Okay? So let me say it this way. You don't know what God's will is in a lot of things. And some things you don't need to pray if it be your will because you know. I, don't, I never need to say this. I never need to say, dear God, please keep being a trinity if it's your will. He's going to keep doing that. Dear God, please keep me saved even though you've already promised to keep me saved by the Spirit. I don't have to pray that according to his will. I know that's his will. He's told me in black and white that's his will. But in most of life, we don't know what God's will is. We don't know if he's going to heal somebody we're praying for. We don't know if they're, we're, we should take a new job. We don't know what to do with this problem person at work or whatever. And because of that, we have to have a sense of humility, and we have to say, God, this is what I want to happen, but I realize that ultimately you know what's best. Daddy, I want hot sauce, but if hot sauce isn't good for me and it's going to burn my tongue, don't give me hot sauce. So when we pray, and at the end of the prayer we say, if it be your will, that's not a lack of faith. That's not like a caveat that we put at the end of the prayer in case, it, in case it doesn't happen, we can save face. It's something that we say because we realize, though this is what we think is best, we don't know what's best. But here's what this text is saying that's so encouraging. Ready? The Spirit always knows God's will. The Spirit always knows what's best for you, so you don't have to get it right. Are you seeing your utter dependence and helplessness when it comes to salvation and everything? That's a lesson I want to keep hitting. God saved you. God gave you the Spirit. God sanctifies you. God resurrects you. God does it. He's the skydiving instructor. You hang there. Sometimes you freak out. Sometimes you don't know what's best. Sometimes you're trying to cut yourself away from the skydiving instructor, and so he grabs you with his arms. Sometimes you're trying to pull the chute early, but it's not time. Sometimes you're doing great. You're like, you're a great skydiving instructor. That's the Christian life, but guess what? Skydiving instructor, he's always doing great. He's always fine. He's not freaked out. He's not worried. He is doing just fine. And because he knows what God's will is, because God only has one will, he can intercede on your behalf for what's best for you, okay? So I want to end by uh, mentioning some things about prayer, and then I want to end by uh, talking about 
something else. So let me just give you a few tips when it comes to prayer, and then I want to say something important. Number one, when praying, pray according to God's will, meaning if God has promised it in Scripture, believe it. If He is not, trust God as a person, a rather trinity of persons, not that you know what the outcome is going to be. You don't. Pray according to God's will. Number two, pray with faith. Pray with faith. You have not because you ask not. Pray with faith. God enjoys giving you good things as long as they won't hurt you. Walk in obedience. Number three, walking in sin can hinder your prayers. Walk in obedience. Number four, confess your sins to God and others. Unrepentance will hinder your prayers. Number five, forgive others as you have been forgiven. If you have not forgiven somebody and your prayers are not answered, that might be why. Number six, have humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. A proud prayer makes no sense. Walk in humility. If you walk with a swagger and God loves you, He will make you walk with a limp. He will make you walk with a limp. Have humility. Number seven, be persistent. Why does God want us to be persistent in prayer? Because He's trying to get us to trust Him and not just the thing we're wanting. Be persistent in prayer. Pray earnestly. Desire it. Want it to happen. Wait on the Lord. That's a big one. Waiting on God to to, to do it. He doesn't always answer our prayers right now. And then lastly, when you're praying, know that you are talking to a loving Father. You don't have to get all the words right. You don't have to do it. Now, having said all that, I just wanted to give you some tips for prayer. That's not what the purpose of this text is, though, at all. This text is not actually about you. This text is not actually about your prayer. It's about despite your failings and despite my failings, the Spirit does the stuff on your behalf. That's tremendously encouraging, okay? I'll give you an example. I had a buddy who uh, built a house, and in his house, he built a safe room, okay? You know what a safe room is? Not a safe space. That's a place where you go to retreat from academics so you don't have to defend your position. A safe, safe, uh, a safe room within his house, okay? Now, his safe room was built to withstand an EF5 tornado. That's as strong as it gets, okay? So this guy had some money. But anyway, this is not me. This is not one of those. I have a friend's stories that's really me. I don't have a safe room in my house. If a tornado comes, I'm toast. All of our our house is just exterior walls. So he's building this safe room, and it is bulletproof. It has big metal doors. It'll withstand a tornado. Like if someone breaks into your house, whatever it is, it's fireproof. He can just go in that safe room, work his little command center, and everything's okay. Now imagine for a second that you're somebody who doesn't like storms. And you check your weather app, and you see, oh, man, there's some storms coming. It looks like it's going to get rough. So you go inside that, uh, that safe room, and you're looking out the bulletproof glass, and all of a sudden you start to see the wind blowing. You start getting nervous. Oh, man, I hate storms. I hate storms. And then you remember, I'm going to be okay. I'm in this safe room, okay? And then all of a sudden you hear those tornado sirens. Oh, and you just get that pit in your stomach, and you're like, I hate those sirens. They're scary. A storm is coming you don't know what to do, your heart starts pounding, and you stop, and you go, you know what, it's okay. I'm in a safe room. There is not a tornado on earth that can destroy this safe room. This is as strong as they're made. You start looking out the window, and you start to see the trees bending. You start to see little pieces of trash and things like that. The sky's got that weird green-purple color to it, and all of a sudden, you start to hear the tornado. You start to hear that deep, howling whistle, and you're freaking out, and your heart's beating, and you don't know if you're going to be okay, and then you stop, and you remember... I'm in the safe room. No matter how strong the safe room is, I'm going to be okay. 
So the tornado comes through. It's loud. It's scary. Things are hitting the glass. You see garage doors fly by. You see trash cans fly by. You're in the storm, and you are freaking out. But you remember, it doesn't matter how strong the storm is because it cannot destroy this safe room. You might be freaking out. You might be not, not doing well, but the safe room is not dependent on how well you're doing. Freak out as much as you do or don't want. The safe room is going to just keep being the safe room, okay? And after the storm passes, you remember... I was never really in any ultimate danger. I was scared, but I had something that was sturdy. Now listen, this is important. If you take nothing else away from the sermon, take this away. Look at me. The Spirit is like that safe room. He is an anchor that will hold. Though you go through suffering, like Tim talked about last week, though you go through scary things and bad things and all of these things, you have hope because not only is there resurrection coming, but the Spirit preserves you, not dependent on how well you're doing, but dependent on how well He's doing, and He is a safe room that will hold. Greater is He who's in you than He who's in the world. Let's pray as we get ready to take communion. Almighty God, we come before You only because uh, Your Son has made a way and only by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, that You've given to us, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I confess that right now as I'm praying... I don't know what's best. I'm broken. But I also confess that for some reason, knowing that the Spirit intercedes for me makes it to where I want to pray more, not less. If I can't mess up the prayer, then I'm more excited to pray. And so I pray that you would help us with that, that might we not only know that glorification's coming, that resurrection's coming, might we know that we have a helper, the Holy Spirit, who preserves those who know Christ. And so we thank you for him. We thank you for everything you've given us. We want to ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.